If I could ask you to grab your Bible and join me in the book of Acts this morning, the very first chapter, Acts chapter 1, so it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts in the New Testament, chapter 1, and um, if you need a Bible this morning, we can help you with that, just uh, uh, put your hand up and we'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you, and there's a little note page in your bulletin that might be of help as well if you don't know that part of the drill. And just so that we are, are sure to be ready for John when he comes next Sunday um, to let him know that we're excellent language learners, uh, should we uh, try one more time the Chinese words for Jesus loves you? Are you game? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Ye su ai ni. Did you get that little ni? Got it? Yeah. Let's do it one more time. Yesu, I, ni. Jesus loves you. We're going to knock it out of the park with him, man. He's going to be so impressed with us. I can't wait. All right. Well, so our, our very first ever missions week kicks off next Sunday, as Bob was sharing that with us earlier. We have done missions Sundays uh, for um, 25, maybe 30 years here at the Bible Church, but we've never set aside a, a whole week to do that. Special focus this time centered uh, on the fact that Idlewild Bible Church is in Beijing, China, by way of our longtime mission partnership with John and Amy Holsclaw and also with uh, Joel and Chris White. And they're, they're uh, going to be with us next Sunday. Well, John will and Joel and Chris will, but um, Amy, as you saw in the little video, she gets to stay home and watch four kids, right? So she wasn't totally excited about that thought, but uh, we're excited about the thought of having them. This week has been a long time in coming, from its conception to its planning, and now it is finally going to be here in less than a week. And I am very excited about all of that. The opportunity that our own missions team uh, has created for us as a church family so that we can reconnect and rekindle our relationships with very dear friends that we actually sent out from this church, uh, well, I think it was uh, 12, 13, 12 years ago. I mean, I've known John since he was in sixth grade, uh, which dates me to be sure but uh, John was part of our church family, and then he was part of our staff, and, and then he and Amy um, uh, just felt the call of the Lord on their life to go to China, and, and I am just excited about us uh, having them back with us in that way, getting a first-person report of what God is doing in, uh, not only in Beijing, but within the nation of China. God's, uh, you know, God's work, really we have a stake in that, this, this thing that God is doing in China. We're partnering with these families, and I'm excited about that. And I'm excited about the thought that, that uh, those in our church family who, who do not know our missionaries in this way are going to have an opportunity to, to maybe connect with them, learn about them, what they're doing, learn uh, what the challenges are for them in their ministry, and make per personal connections that might even translate to wanting to be involved with them in more uh, committed ways. And so all of that's going to be a part of this week that kicks off next Sunday. Today, as part of how we might be just a little bit better prepared for the week that is coming, 
I'd like to ask you to spend a little bit of time uh, with me remembering what it is that lies behind the idea of even having a missions week here at the Bible Church in the first place. Why dedicate a week to having all of us collectively think about the fact that Idlewild Bible Church is in Beijing, China? Why would we want to do that? Earlier, uh, as, John, as Bob was sharing with us, he drew our attention to the fact that, that we are enlarging God's kingdom when we uh, think in these uh, directions uh, like a missions week, that we're enlarging God's kingdom. And it just reminds me that uh, here at the Bible Church, we, we have a, an, an acronym that, that seeks to convey four very important values that are part of our church family. Uh, we call it the LIFE acronym, and the banner is there on your wall to remind us week after week that we do LIFE at Idlewild Bible Church. And the acronym, the L-I-F-F-E, stands for four values. We, we love God together, right, which is, is our collective corporate gatherings where we express our love to the Lord uh, often in these kinds of settings. The, the I stands for investing in each other. That pretty much takes in our, our small group, life group, midweek ministry, because we can't just do life on Sunday morning. It needs to be bigger and more and deeper than that. And then we find places to serve, the F, because the Holy Spirit has given each of us special giftings that he wants us to use for his glory in this place. If we're not all serving, uh, we're limiting what could be accomplished by the Lord in, in this body of believers. And then lastly, we are committed. Fourth value, E, enlarging God's kingdom, which means that you and I are telling others about Jesus whether that's through one-on-one uh, -on -one witnessing or some evangelism outreach ministry or, or the whole missions program of our church family. Four core values. We do life here in this place. Certainly hosting a, a missions week and bringing in our missionaries from a faraway place promotes the fourth value, the enlarging God's kingdom value. But church family, it, it really goes much deeper than that. What actually drives both this fourth value, enlarging God's kingdom, as well as the missions week idea, is a command. A command from Jesus to all of us who know him as our Lord and Savior. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, where your Bible is open right now, you're open to Acts chapter 1, we find this command. Now, we'll find it in many other places as well in Scripture, but certainly it is laid out right here for us in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my, what's the next word? You will be my witnesses, this is Jesus speaking, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Ever enlarging circles of impact. I have a job for you to do, Jesus says to his followers. I want you to take my name, the truth about me, salvation for sinners, restored relationship with God through faith in me. I want you to take that message to every single place in the world where there are people who don't know me or who don't know me in a saving way yet. And I want you to take that message, whether the person is across the street here in Idlewild or whether they are around the world, for example, in Beijing, China. 
I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to tell others about me. And when they believe what you tell them about me, I want you to help them become what you are, a disciple who makes disciples, followers who lead others to follow me. That's what I want. In this opening section of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 specifically, we're given a fresh reminder of what is required of us to live out this command to be witnesses. On your note page, we have to know the message. You see that there. We can't pass on what we clearly don't understand, right? We need to be able to know the message in order to be able to communicate it. And that's going to come out of this passage. As well, uh, we have to, to claim Holy Spirit power. There's no way that we can pass on this message of Jesus in our own strength. There's no way. It's bigger than that, bigger than us. And then we have to stay focused on what really matters those three points there on your little note page. It's easy to get sidetracked and distracted from what really matters most. And so we're going to tease uh, each of these truths out of this passage with the time that we have together this morning. Again, as part of just prepping our hearts for Missions Week uh, coming up. Now, since I have dropped you all on the doorstep of Acts, really without any warning, Just remember with me for a moment that the book of Acts is essentially the Bible's historical record about the earliest beginnings of the church. Its 28 chapters tell us about the the first 30 years of life in Jesus' church, how the church began, how it grew, where it it grew, and and in those early years, uh, what it took to make that growth possible. Luke, writing under the inspiring hand of the Holy Spirit here, composes a history for a friend. He's writing a a history to a friend whose name is Theophilus, and we're going to learn about that. Probably never imagining that God would take his history written to a friend about the church and then would make that part of inerrant Holy Scripture. But that's what has happened. And so here's how uh, Luke's uh, history of the early church begins, verse 1 of chapter 1, I'll read for us. You follow along in your Bible. Luke says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men, these are angels, stood by them in white robes. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And we'll stop right there. In 11 verses, Luke manages to cram the crucifixion, the resurrection, the great commission, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the ascension of Jesus into heaven, and the promise of his return. It is all right here. Do you think we have enough to be able to occupy our time uh, that we have left this morning? I think that we do. The words of Jesus from verse 8, you shall be my witnesses. Of course, I, I, I personally believe they, they lie at the heart of this opening section. I don't think that anybody who, was reading the, who has read the New Testament or who has read it for the very first time can, especially the first five books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, could come away from their reading without clearly knowing that Jesus has an expectation for all those who follow him in simple faith. His expectation is that if he truly is your Lord, your Savior, uh, that we're going to give personal testimony to the fact that we have that relationship with him. We're going to make personal witness to his place in our lives, both by our words and by our walk, by the way that we live and by the way that we talk. We are going to be saying to others, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. We will be his witnesses. That's his expectation. Now, it's important, as I say that, that you and I know that Jesus never gave us a command to be the ones who build his church. That isn't what he gave us to do. He says, I will build my church, Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, right? Yeah, is that up there? Yeah. Yeah, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will do that. Building the church is on me, Jesus says. But each of the four Gospels, at the end of each of these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Luke right here in Acts chapter 1, tells us that Jesus issues a command that we don't build the church, but we witness to Jesus who builds his church. Take, for example, Matthew chapter 28, last book of the Gospel of Matthew, last couple of verses there. Who's going to build the church? Jesus is going to build the church. Who's going to bear witness of Jesus? You and me. Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples of what? All the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We call it the Great Commission. But it's really a great command. Be my witnesses in the world, Jesus says. How does Mark's gospel end? Well, in chapter 16, last chapter of Mark, verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and do what? Proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And then Luke, how does Luke end his gospel? Well, Luke chapter 24, verse 46, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be what? Proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses. 
And then how does John's gospel end? John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am what? I am sending you. Do you detect a theme here as we share these closing statements from each of the four gospels? Of course you do. You have to. You can't miss it. The expectation of Jesus for all of those who follow him in simple saving faith is that they are going to give personal testimony from their life and by their words to, his, to the place that he holds in their life. And they're going to do that by walking by word. They'll give personal witness concerning Jesus to a world that does not yet know him in a saving way. And, and we will do that whenever the opportunity presents itself. And so let me just pause, step out of this for a moment, and ask you a question. Considering no one but yourself, how are you living up to this expectation that Jesus has for you, brother, sister in Christ? How are you living up to this expectation? Are you faithfully carrying out this command to bear witness to Jesus by walk and by word? You say, hmm. well, sometimes, sometimes, but I'd have to confess I'm, I'm inconsistent in that. Or would you have to say, boy, yeah, Tim, that's tough. I, I'm conspicuous, conspicuously silent now that you mention it. I, in fact, I can't remember really the last time that I spoke of my Jesus with someone who doesn't know him. Now, this is not a guilt trip exercise, okay? I'm not trying to guilt you in any way or guilt myself. But it is the challenge. It is the expectation of Jesus that we would be a part of his witnessing command. We just read these passages that make that uh, unmistakably clear. And, and, and listen, no matter where we might be landing in this moment when it comes to this command, it is never too late to say to Jesus, I want to be your witness. I want to bear witness for you. I really do. Help me. And if that is coming from your heart as a sincere desire, it is something that Jesus would like to bring into your life because it's in harmony with his own heart. And so we ask him for that. Now, on the note page that you have, what are some of the things that go into making us an effective witness for Jesus? Whether we're talking about going across the street, that's you and me here in Idlewild right now, or going halfway around the world, as is the case for John and Amy, Joel and Chris. What, is, what are some of the things that help us to become effective witnesses for our Lord? Well, Luke shares this encounter between Jesus and his closest friend, Friends, and three truths just spill out of this section. We have to know the message before we can share it. We have to lay claim to the Holy Spirit's power or we'll never be able to share it. And we have to stay focused on what really matters or we'll get lost in the details of something else and miss sharing the message. So let's talk about those three. Let's just tease them out quickly. First, we can't be very effective witnesses for Jesus if we don't know the message well enough to talk about it. Would you agree with that? Sure. 
as Luke, medical doctor turned historian here, begins to write his history of the early church, he begins at the only right place to begin, and that is with the person of Jesus. Look at verse 1 again. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Where does Luke begin his story? With the person of Jesus. Now we read this first verse and instantly we know that the book of Acts must be volume two of a two volume set. So what would volume one be? It's the gospel of Luke, isn't it? And Luke wrote that gospel to his friend Theophilus as well. Luke's gospel. And, and Luke's gospel, as, as you may know, is essentially a biography of the earthly life of Jesus. Or maybe to say it another way, Luke's gospel is the story of God, the one and only God, putting on human flesh and coming to live in our sinful world. Luke's gospel, volume one of his two-volume set, is the story of the incarnation. God putting on flesh. Incarnation, carne, Latin for flesh. Incarnate, in flesh. When we talk about the incarnation of Jesus, we're talking about true God putting on our flesh, right? And any message that we want to share with the world that doesn't know Jesus has to include this part, the incarnation, God putting on human flesh. Theophilus, in my former book, I wrote you about the incarnation of God. That's essentially what he says about Jesus' earthly life, what he said, and what he did. From the moment of mankind's rebellion in the Garden of Eden when sin entered the human story with its spiritual and physical death and loss of relationship between, between humanity and God, God has had a plan, a plan to redeem and to restore what sin has so grievously destroyed. Jesus, God's son, is the center of the message, the center of the story. He leaves the glories of heaven and he puts on flesh. And Luke might say, you know, I wrote about that in my first book, Jesus born in Bethlehem, and he incarnates God's message of love and redemption. Incarnation. We don't have a message if we don't include that as part of it. In fact, the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, puts it this way. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became what? Flesh. Who's that referring to? Jesus. The Word is Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is the message of incarnation. If we're going to be witnesses, we better proclaim this. God became one of us. Amen? Yeah. And then following the incarnation, our message must contain the truth about Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus came to us to do what? Die for us, right? In verse 3, Luke mentions Jesus' suffering, which again he chronicles in great detail in his first book. He came to suffer terribly and unjustly and die on a cross, paying the sinner's debt. All of this, Luke says, I wrote about in my first book. Theophilus, you know this. The Apostle Paul will say something similar to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, 
And when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. I wasn't trying to impress you with my delivery. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him, what? Crucified. Incarnation. Crucifixion. Unless Jesus is crucified and dies on a cross, our sin debt remains unpaid, right? He must atone for the sin in our lives by his death. That is God's plan. And so there has to be a crucifixion part to our message or we really have no message. And then Luke says in verse 3, he presented himself, what's the next word? Alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke says, Theophilus, I wrote you about what happened after Jesus suffered and died. Death and the grave could not hold him. Church family, what Luke does in verse 3 is let us know that he knows that you can't have a salvation message for a dying world unless you have a resurrection story to tell. True? I mean, the resurrection of Jesus lies at the heart of our Christian faith. And without it, we really have nothing to share. We have no message. Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate proof that his payment with his life for our sin debt was, in fact, accepted by God. When God gave his son to die in our place and then raised Jesus from the dead, he was, he was by that resurrecting act declaring that he was pleased. He was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. And so we must bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus or we have no witness. God demonstrates the depths of his love for us by offering anyone, not just us, but anyone, full forgiveness, full forgiveness, free without cost, when we put our faith in Jesus alone, his death and his resurrection. That's our message. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Do you suppose we could read this verse aloud together right off the screen? Let's do that. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do we not have all three parts of the message that we share, that we bear witness to in that one verse. Jesus is Lord, right? What is that? That's incarnation, death, crucifixion, and he's alive, resurrection. Jesus was, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 4.25, delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for what? Our justification. As we've done our study through the book of Galatians and just wrapped that up, we spent a lot of time talking about this word justification. What does it mean? Well, to be justified means to be declared not guilty and fully righteous in the court of heaven by God himself. That's what justified means. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us know with certainty that where sin is paid for by the blood of Jesus, death is conquered by the resurrection of Jesus, and we are pronounced through faith in him, not guilty, fully righteous, justified. Aren't you glad to know that about yourself today? The Apostle Peter, who was actually in this small circle of followers here in Acts chapter 1, we know this because verse 13 tells us he was there. 
Peter will write this many years later, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. It is impossible to be a Christian, to have one's sin debt paid in full, to possess the promise of heaven forever, apart from believing that God put on flesh, that God died in our place, and that he rose from the dead because the grave couldn't hold him. How sad that God would offer this truth, this life to the world, and so many would say, I don't want it. But that doesn't mean we don't share it, right? So what Luke has done in just three verses is declare that any accurate telling of the story of Jesus has to include these three things, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. Leave any one of those out and you have an incomplete message. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses and this is what you're going to tell them. Whether you go across the street or whether you go halfway around the world like the holes clause have done, this is what you're going to tell them. God put on flesh. He died in our place. He rose from the dead, victorious over sin in the grave. That's the message that Jesus is handing off to his dear friends here in Acts chapter 1. But there's a problem. They possess this truth about Jesus, but they don't have the power needed to make this truth known. They have a glorious, life-changing, liberating message, but they don't have any power to communicate it. If there is even a shred of hope that the salvation message of Jesus is going to be proclaimed, there must be a power transfer. Somehow or now, the power of God needs to get into their lives so that they can bear witness. And that's what Luke talks about next. Verse 4, he talks about the promise of power. Flip your note page over if you aren't, haven't done that yet. Verse 4. Luke says, And while staying with them, while Jesus was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. Jesus, the salvation message of God, incarnated, is about to return back to heaven. And so he says to his disciples, you've been given the truth, but as of right now, you don't have the power to pull off what I want you to do. So you sit tight, you stay here in Jerusalem, and the promise that my father has made will come to you in a moment, in a time. We know what promise Jesus is referring to. What is the promise? It's the promise of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Yeah, verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus says that the power that fills his own life, Holy Spirit power, is soon going to fill his followers' lives. They just need to wait. In other words, he won't ask them to do something for him that, that is, bear witness to him, of him to a dying world without supplying what they need to successfully accomplish that. That encourages me. Jesus will never ask me to do what he doesn't supply me the power to do it with. Do you like that thought? I like that thought. We read about this power transfer in the second chapter of Acts, right next door to where we are. In fact, would you find verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1? Let's read about that. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together, they being the disciples of Jesus, his closest followers, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing the disciples speak in his own language. Verse 11, those who were there said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What was it that Jesus said in verse 8 of chapter 1? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you will what? Be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, and then in a larger circle, Judea, and then a larger circle after that, Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the whole earth. Acts chapter 2 is just a, a small taste of what is to come as the good news of Jesus is spreading out throughout the whole world. But it's only happening because of Holy Spirit power. What is the message that will be communicated once again, just so we're all on track? Incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. Listen to Peter now. On this day, in this moment, now filled with the Holy Spirit, listen to what he says. See if you don't hear these three parts of his message. Verse 22 of chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. What is that? That's incarnation. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What is that? Crucifixion. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it, is, it was not possible for him to be held by it. What is that? Resurrection. In these few verses, Peter communicates the message. He bears witness to the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus. The great crowd hears Peter's Holy Spirit-energized message, and they cry out, What do we do now? We did this. What happens now? Verse 38, Peter says, Repent. The word means to change your mind about. Change your mind about Jesus and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter and the other disciples had to wait for the Holy Spirit to come into their lives. Jesus asked them, wait until I transfer the power to you. Peter says here now, that never happens again. Put your faith in Jesus and instantly the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. He's not someone we have to seek after. He's not someone we have to ask for. The Holy Spirit is not someone we have to pursue. He comes to take up residence in us and this happens 
Peter says instantly the moment that we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He comes to live in us so that we will have the power, real power, to witness about Jesus both across the street and around the world. Like the whole clause are doing right now. Just to finish out this moment in Acts 2, go to verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, who, who heard his witness and accepted and believed it, were baptized and there were added that day about how many souls? 3,000. 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus this day. Holy Spirit power made that happen. Ten days earlier, do you think this would have happened? Do you? No, of course it wouldn't have happened. Fellow Christian, the purpose that Jesus has in mind for this transfer of power from himself to his followers is very specific. It was so that the church could be born and that the number of souls saved might increase exponentially. Go back to verse 8 one more time, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses where? Throughout the whole world, starting in Jerusalem. 3,000 saved. The church is born. It's an incredible moment in our story today. For any of us to be effective witnesses for Jesus, then we need to know the message. And we need to claim Holy Spirit power or we can't share the message. And we must also, third point there, stay focused. Avoid the distractions that would take our focus off of our, our witness. And who among us is not painfully aware of how easy it is to be distracted? Right? I know that's true in my life. I'm sure it is in yours. In verse 4, the disciples were together with Jesus in Jerusalem. And that's when he says, wait for the promise. Well, that meeting ends and some time passes. How much time? We're not exactly sure. But between verse 5 and verse 6, there's a passage of some time. In verse 6, Jesus meets the disciples again, the 11 and a few others. And this is, this is actually going to be Jesus' ascension day, the day that he's going to return back into heaven, take his rightful place at the Father's side. As, as they meet, the disciples have a question for Jesus, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, is this, just not, like, is this not like the disciples that we have come to know? The resurrected Jesus is about to entrust the birthing of the church to them. He gives them the message Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. He gives them the message. He gives them the divine power that will enable them to share the message. And they say in this moment, uh, excuse me, Jesus, excuse me, but is this where the program kicks in, where you declare war on Israel's enemies, you dethrone Caesar, and you restore Israel to her former glory, you as the king and us as your regents? Is this where all that happens? Where are the disciples' hearts? Where are their heads? They're not on witness, are they? They're not thinking about witness. 
How often, lover of Jesus, do we miss witness because we lose focus and we get distracted by secondary issues? How often does that happen? The disciples wanted to know if Jesus was about to restore the national fortunes of Israel. They believed that the coming of Messiah was connected with the overthrow of Israel's enemies. And the disciples had more than once, as you know their story in the Gospels, they had argued with each other about where they fell out in the pecking order of of Jesus' kingdom. Remember that? They fought about that. And Jesus here, he's thinking about something very different. He's thinking about witness. They're thinking about earthbound political stuff. Verse 7. Look what Jesus says. Fellas. Fellas. Well, he doesn't really say that, but I think that's kind of what he was doing. Fellas, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Man, I am not interested in a political program, and that's not what should be important to you either. The Father has his plan for Israel. He has his plan for the whole world. Leave those plans to him. You are my plan and people are my priority. Or to say it another way, he moved their attention away from speculation about things they didn't need to know to proclamation of the truth that others needed to know. That's what Jesus does in this moment. But you, verse 8, will receive power and you will become my witnesses. To the world. That's what you need to think about. And then even as this drama of the ascension of Jesus unfolds, even there the disciples need some help. Look at verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men, angels, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. And Jesus is gone. And as they're looking up into the sky, the angels are saying, why are you standing there looking up into the sky? Now, implied in that question, I would submit to you is, this is not a good thing for you to be doing right now. Because Jesus has told you what to do. Do that. Between the lines, I believe that's what's going on here. Don't stand here looking up into the clouds. Get on with what it is that he's told you to do. And oh, Christian, how many missed opportunities, how many wasted chances, how many overlooked moments have we let get by in our witness for Jesus because we were gazing in some other direction? None of this was lost on Peter, though. Years later, as an old man, he writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, these words. He was taking notes this day if not literally, at least in his heart and mind. He says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. Always be prepared to give an answer. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. 
but do this with gentleness and respect. When Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, he was not expressing a wish. He was not making a suggestion. He was making a declaration and he was voicing a command and a clear expectation. My people will be my witnesses. Whether it's going across the street or next door or to the coffee shop or to the place where you work or whether it's the holes claws and the whites going halfway around the world to China sent out by Ottawa Bible Church by us, we are all part of this great command. Missions Week fits into that. It's something bigger than us, but something that God is delighted to let us share in, enlarging his kingdom as part of fulfilling Jesus' expectation for us. We have a message, and we have the Holy Spirit. Let us stay focused and communicate the message. And what was that again? Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. John and Amy, on that little video, told us the message. What was it? Jesus loves you. That's the same message, isn't it? So just to make sure that we've got it, we're going to be ready for him next week. How about we share this one more time? Let's try it one more time. You ready? Yesu, I, me. One more time. Yesu, I, me. John will be very impressed impressed if we get that that little inflection at the end. He's going to think we're pros. Jesus loves you and me. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us today. We thank you for the the privilege, the, the, the opportunity that is ours to to encourage brothers and sisters who are serving in a faraway place and, and to bring them home uh, to spend time with us here. And, and uh, so we just say thank you for that. More than that, we thank you for your heart to save a world that is separated from you because of sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, putting on our flesh, taking our sin to the cross, dying for it, being buried and rising from the dead. We believe that this is who you are and what you have done. And that's the message you've given to us to share. Thank you. Give us courage. Give us boldness. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Church family, I ask you to stand with me, please. And uh, if you'll extend your hands, I will bring a blessing to us as we head out. And again, if you have opportunity to stay for just a little while, it won't be very long, but we'd like to get underway just as quick as we can. Uh, turn this place into a little prayer center and lift up uh, Missions Week, uh, IBC in Beijing, uh, to the Lord. So here we go. Hands extended. May you receive the full power of the Holy Spirit flowing out of you so that you will be Jesus' witness in your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, and perhaps to the ends of the earth. For his glory, we all say amen and amen. Have a great, great week, church family.